Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Kellen, we made it through another year. I feel like that's a big accomplishment, actually. Like, all of us, you and me, Corey, everybody who's listening, we've made it through 2021. Yeah, I think there's no denying that stuff is whack. Things are weird. It's chaotic. There's a lot going on, and stuff is accelerating. You know, if we had started this podcast in 2015, and we were just over a year in, you know, mid-2016, like... 2016 was weird. You know, Trump became president and there was a while there where there was like clowns and everybody was afraid of clowns. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, it was like all over that random clowns were just appearing in the woods and scaring people and people were like actually freaked out about. It. Anyway, that was the weird of of a few years ago, right? And of course, I'm downplaying a little bit. There was still a lot going on, but 2020 and 2021 have just been sort of a paradigm shift into what pretty intense years can look like. And that being said, they've also not been anything compared to what we can expect in the future. So the purpose of today's episode is to kind of recap what we've seen in the year 2021, obviously, specifically as it relates to collapse. And then at the end, just for fun, we may talk a little bit about sort of our ideas of what the future might look like, what we might expect from 2022. And I think we'll just make this an annual thing where the last episode or so of the year, we'll, uh, we'll just do this over and over again and in that way sort of chronicle the years as they come. You know, with somewhere between 7 and 8 billion people on the planet, there are so many things happening 
simultaneously all the time, both good and bad. There were plenty of good things that happened during 2021, but you're right that from a collapse perspective, 2021 was a significant year, and it seems that we're accelerating on this dangerous path that we're on. You may remember that to start the year, January 6th, some very interesting things happened in the United States. Yeah, if you listen to last week's episode with Haven McVarish, the events of January 6th, I think, are a very accurate sort of depiction of the state of politics in the U.S. Yeah, and if I go ahead and assume that we've got people who are on both sides of the political spectrum listening to this episode, either way, right, whether you think someone who should have won the election didn't, or whether you think someone who didn't win is making false claims that they should have, in either case, you're alarmed about the state of our democracy. And so the January 6th insurrection or capital riots or whatever you want to call it was a big indicator of a lot of the political tensions that are taking place. But when you talk about threats to democracy, the U.S. wasn't the only place in the world who saw some serious issues. You think about India, a number of things that happened there, Brazil, uh, there were coups in Myanmar, and Chad, and Mali, and Guinea, Sudan. You know, China was really tightening its grip on Hong Kong. You may remember that there were thousands of protesters arrested in Cuba. And on top of that, there was just a lot of tension and conflict globally anyways. You may remember hearing about, you know, 55 people being killed and 50,000 more were displaced in this conflict that took place following border disputes between Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. You might also remember Israel hitting the Gaza Strip with airstrikes while Hamas increased its rocket fire, and that was after Israel had begun displacing Palestinians. I mean, that was a big deal, but I know for me, it's easy to forget about. Anyways, when it comes to conflict, internal political conflict within nations and international conflict between nations, there weren't any huge world wars or anything like that, but there was a lot of tension. And conflict has always been around, right? It's not necessarily a new idea to say that we are collapsing because there is conflict. However, we do know that as collapse continues, conflict will get worse. As there's more strain and competition for resources, especially resources necessary to life like water and food, as there are economic and financial issues, and as all of these things just heighten the already existing, you know, ethno or nationalistic type tensions, it just ratchets up and makes conflict so much more likely and so much more devastating because there's so much more on the line. And we're seeing while there were some things where tensions sort of ratcheted up and then de-escalated, at least momentarily, like in Israel, for example, there are other areas in which we're seeing these tensions ratchet up and there is no de-escalation. So with things like Russia on the border with Ukraine and the threat of China regarding Taiwan, issues between Belarus and Poland, besides the one that Kellen's already mentioned and that I mentioned, there's just so much of it going on. And who knows what sort of conflicts will take place if it's ones that we already see where those tensions already exist, or if there will be new conflicts that come out of nowhere, we don't know. But there's no doubt many different places to keep an eye on as we continue into the future. Yeah, when you talk about some of those conflicts that haven't de-escalated, and we're still waiting to see exactly how they play out, I think of the United States' relationship with Iran, especially around their nuclear developments, and them 
wanting us to lift previous sanctions and us trying to reach a deal, but diplomacy hasn't really worked out very well. And some estimates say that they are, you know, only a month away from having weapon-grade nuclear uranium and the ability to ratchet up their nuclear threat. I also think about the fact that You know, if you remember, the U.S. had been set to withdraw from Afghanistan. And as they were withdrawing, the Afghanistan National Army collapsed and the Taliban overran the country. And there were so many deaths and $2.3 trillion spent over the course of 20 years with the U.S. and Afghanistan. And yet things seem to have returned to the kind of conditions we were seeing from the Taliban previously. There's also Ethiopian civil war. You know, in the summer, in June, after conflict that had kind of gone up and down in the region, the Tigray People's Liberation Front recaptured Tigray's capital, Mikel, from federal forces. And militias have been making their way across the area, and they've been cutting off some supplies. It's a total mess there. Two million Ethiopians have been displaced, and there have been terrible war crimes committed on all sides. I also think about this security pact between Australia, the UK, and the United States, and it's enabling Australia to build its first nuclear-powered submarine fleet. It'll take a long time for them to do that, but the common consensus is that this is in an effort to counter the influence of China. I'll read one more statement just while we're talking about some of these international relations. On July 18th, an international investigation revealed that spyware sold by Israel's NSO group to different governments is being used to target heads of state, along with thousands of activists, journalists, and dissidents around the world. So in terms of tensions, conflict, there's many more we could mention, but I think we've made the point clear there. Yeah, and a lot of those tensions and conflicts that you just mentioned are involving like the military, but we also saw a lot this year as far as protests, riots, you know, people standing up for themselves to their own governments. And in some cases, just violence springing up out of, you know, a lack of of law enforcement or control from the government, whatever that looks like. You know, you think to like the South African riots that happened this year and the massive amount of looting that went on there and sort of lawlessness on that front. Um, In Colombia, you had these protests where, you know, protesters were being severely mistreated, even killed by the police. And those ramped up and got really hot for, for a good while. Of course, in the U.S., we have ongoing protests for social justice causes, you know, in different areas in Europe, like the Netherlands, you have people who are protesting strict COVID mandates. So there's just all sorts of unrest among people who in a lot of ways are feeling oppressed. And whether or not you're of the opinion that they're correct, right, that that these people are in each individual case in whatever country they're in, justified in their outrage, the fact of the matter is people are becoming outraged. And that is what happens. You know, we talked about this a lot when the people feel that their government is illegitimate, that their rulers are illegitimate, and it increases the likelihood for these types of sort of uprisings to happen. And again, it's just another thing that I think we'll see happen much more in the future as conditions deteriorate. Okay, so some other things that we saw in 2021, and it's hard to even separate these out because they're also interrelated, but you think of all the supply chain struggles. You also think of workforce shortages and, you know, worldwide surges in inflation. Each of those is interconnected. But when you think about supply chains, for example, 
you know, companies had decreased production and let their inventories dwindle as a result of the coronavirus, but then demand spiked. And so there was this massive disparity between supply and demand. And there was a huge shortage of shipping containers. You may remember a number of ports got backed up. One of the most visual representations of these supply chain shortages took place when, you know, that giant container ship blocked up the Suez Canal. And you may remember that was there blocking up the canal for like a week. It's estimated that the cost of that blockage from that large container ship was around $9.6 billion a day. We've talked at length about the shortage in computer chips, you know, microchips, and how that's affected so many different industries. And it's a prime example of the kind of shortages that we're facing and we continue to face. And it's probably going to take, you know, at least a couple of years for some of those to sort themselves out. Some industries may never be quite the same as what they were before. I've mentioned on a couple of occasions that I know somebody who owns like a manufacturing facility they do injection molding for plastics and he was talking about you know between the texas freeze that had taken place and all the hurricanes and all the supply chain issues it's gotten to the point where you know people used to be mad at his company because they were saying ah oh, it's going to be months several months until we can get you what you are asking for but since then it's just kind of become the new normal that people expect it to take up to a year for them to get whatever they're trying to order. And he was talking to me about polypropylene and polyethylene and some of the challenges with each of those, but it has gotten better in that industry. They are able to get the resins faster than they were before. But at the same time, this same individual that I'm talking about, he's currently in the process of building a home. And he said that they ordered their cabinets clear back in March of 2020, and they still haven't yet arrived. And you hear that all the time with different supplies and appliances. And so it it's just been the kind of year where people that didn't even know what supply chains were before know that term now. It's a common household term because there have been so many issues. Yeah. I mean, you still can't go around town without seeing, you know, in every other store window, a sign that says, due to supply chain shortages, we don't have something, right? You go to a restaurant, they don't have to-go cups. You go to another restaurant, they don't have straws. And, and it just seems like everybody has something missing, right? One restaurant I saw said that they had to change up their recipe and the dough that they used to make their pizza is now different. And that leads to a whole other issue that we're seeing, that we've seen this year, and that I think we'll continue to see, which is staffing shortages, right? Not only are there signs up there saying we don't have to-go cups, but also pretty much every, this isn't every other store, this is every store, has a sign up that says either we're hiring or more often a sign that says something like, please be patient with us due to short staffing, wait times may be longer than usual or something like that. It's everywhere. It seems like everybody is trying to hire. They're not finding the labor that they need, which is just a feedback loop because the workers that are there are getting overworked, overburdened. They're still expected to do the work of everybody else and they're likely not getting paid more to do it. And they're likely not getting paid enough in the first place to do the job that they're already doing. And so it leads to more burnout. And we've talked about this a little bit in the podcast about how great it is that it is a laborer's market right now. It's easier for many people to be able to sort of pick and choose what, what they want to work in more than it has been in the past. But that being said, with increasing inflation, as we've seen it, and we'll talk about that more in a bit, but the rate at which 
wages are increasing because of the shortage of, of laborers, companies are having to increase their wages, um, it still probably isn't keeping up with inflation, which was just mentioned that was up near 10% from November to November. And I really doubt that most people are getting you know a 10% raise. And I know there are so many different numbers floating around out there about inflation. It can be measured in different ways depending on what time frames you're looking at and what items you're comparing. But it has risen at its highest rate in three decades. And that's looking at consumer prices, data released by the labor department. And so you've got a number of factors. I'm sure we don't even know all of the factors that come into play here. But when you talk about supply chain shortages and you talk about staffing shortages, you talk about the spike in consumption and demand after the big dip that took place, you know, it's alarming. And, and there are indicators that that's not about to slow down anytime soon. When it comes to prices being inflated, perhaps the most drastic example has been the housing market. And I hesitate to even cite any numbers because, again, that's one place where depending on the area and what sources you're looking at, you're going to see all sorts of different things out there. But it's been clear that in much of the world, and particularly in the U.S., housing prices hit some spikes that I think were just previously unimaginable. Yeah, I don't know much about real estate markets outside of the U.S., except for Canada. I know that Canada has gone through the same thing, and I think in some areas even more intense than in the U.S., and it is. It's astronomically high, and it's worrying for a lot of reasons, but specifically for, you know, millennials who are just getting into the age where they would normally look into purchasing a home, right? Suddenly, the house that they could have afforded before, you know, it's... 50% higher or more than it was. And if that's not bad enough, rents have also gone up. So now you've got increased costs for mortgages, increased costs for rents, and not an increase in wages to make up for it. So it's putting this more intense crunch on the working class. But meanwhile, you know, the landlords who bought their house a decade ago and are renting it out are now able to charge these just outrageous rents and you know, make awesome profits on it. And I think you're thinking about landlords, you know, kind of ma and pa, small town landlords that maybe have a couple of properties. But one interesting shift is, like you said, a lot of people that normally would be buying homes right now, because they can't afford it, they're instead either purchasing townhomes or condos or are just renting. And there's been this consolidation where large wealthy individuals and corporations have been buying up properties and are taking advantage of the fact that so many people are renting. It kind of goes to that saying, um, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. This idea that the future is you rent everything. You'll own literally nothing and you'll be happy is what they is what they say, right? And I think this last year or two has been a big shift towards that, specifically in the housing market. Well, and that just leads into the fact, we won't go into it in detail, but wealth disparity, the wealth gap is at what I consider a really extreme spot right now. Over the last couple of years, 2020 and 2021, there's been this widening of the wealth gap. The wealthy have gotten so much wealthier. You talked about kind of the crunch on the middle class and the disappearing of the middle class. And that's something I think we can expect to continue to see when it comes to any of these big financial economic issues, I'm grateful that at least here in the U.S., we're not dealing with what 
many other countries are. There have been, in 2021, some huge economic challenges in different parts of the world. I think of Lebanon, for example, where they've basically had this economic collapse. I think about the economic hardship that has resulted in a lot of mass migrations during 2021. And economic hardship isn't the only reason, but think about Haiti and between all of the economic hardship that they were facing, political events and natural disasters, Haiti's president was assassinated and then they had that massive earthquake and we got this huge influx of Haitian migrants trying to get into the U.S. and into other countries. One statement from an article I read today says, by October, the number of people entering the United States illegally had hit 1.7 million over the prior year, the highest number since 1960. It also said the European Union saw a 70% rise compared to 2020 in the number of people entering illegally, with critics arguing that the EU was failing its duty to help migrants. So we're talking here about all these interrelated issues, but these are the kind of things we've mentioned in the past we expect to see more and more with climate change and increasing conflict and economic issues. It makes sense that we're going to see more and more of these kind of mass migration events. Yeah, and there are just a ton of different reasons why mass migrations could happen. From everything that we've talked about so far, political tensions, economic stresses, supply chain shortages, whatever it is, there's so many. Uh, but I think the biggest reason that we'll begin to see mass migrations is from climate change. And I had made a list kind of throughout the year and then doing some research and looking back on what, what happened this year in 2021, climate and weather wise. And there is just more than we can talk about in an hour or two hours in this podcast, right? You know, I'll just I'll just read off a few and then we'll touch on some more specific numbers on certain things. But you alluded earlier to the snowstorm in Texas, which is just it just caused so much damage and was a result of an altered jet stream, right? The Arctic was abnormally warm. It altered that jet stream and it made that cold front hover for much longer than a cold front normally does. The amount of flooding that occurred globally was unprecedented from Germany to Italy, China, within the US, and so many other places. You know, at one point, I remember in July, there was just this simultaneous, like explosion of natural disasters, literally like within a week, it seemed like every continent had some major weather event happening. You know, there were three dams that burst in China that caused major flooding. Germany, Belgium, Turkey, New Zealand all flooded. There were wildfires happening in the U.S., in Canada, and Siberia. It was just sort of this chaotic month altogether. Greece had some of their largest wildfires. We had issues with the atmospheric rivers, both in California as well as British Columbia. We did full episodes on those that dumped catastrophic amounts of rain. And then we have the example of the tornadoes just this week from when we're recording this. By the time the episode comes out, it will have been a couple of weeks of these tornadoes that touched down in the U.S. and the records that one of them broke. For example, you know, the Quad State Tornado, as it's been called, which was the first tornado to make its way through four different states, traveling 200 plus miles and racking up a cost that was in the multiple billions in the month of December, which isn't unheard of to have tornadoes in the month of December, but it's certainly not the most active time for tornadoes in the year. With that being said, when it comes to the cost of climate disasters, 
you know, the numbers that I have here are specifically for the U.S., but it says that since 1980, there have been 308 natural disasters costing over a billion dollars in the U.S., and each year they adjusted for inflation. That's an average of 7.3 events per year, costing an average $50 billion per year, and around 358 deaths average per year since 1980. But in 2021, and this was just as of October 8th, um, there have been 18 weather or climate disaster events with losses exceeding a billion dollars. So where the average from 1980 was seven, there was 18 this year. And we already know, again, with these tornadoes, that was at least one more, at least 19. I, I can't think if there was any other between mid-October to, to now. It says these events included one drought event, two flooding events, nine severe storms, four tropical cyclone events, one wildfire event, and one winter storm event. Overall, these events resulted in the deaths of 538 people and had significant economic effects on the areas impacted. So a year that was well above average in regards to the number of deaths caused, the number of events that cost over a billion dollars, and the total accumulated cost of those events. One article on insurance uh, in the U.S. stated that costs were up 24% this year on natural disaster claims over the previous year. So there are just so many different ways to look at the effects of natural disasters, the consequences of climate change. You can look at it from a human toll, the cost of, of lives. You can look at it from a financial cost. You can look at it from a resource perspective, the amount of physical resources, but also labor, the opportunity cost of having to fix these things every time over and over and over again. You can also look at the effect that it has on supply chains. You know, we mentioned that earlier, but you think about these tornadoes, for example, that ripped through warehouses, that cut electricity, you know, destroyed countless numbers of semi-trucks. There was one article regarding the tornadoes where they were saying specifically that the increase in tornado activity that's expected because of climate change, just that in and of itself could have a serious impact on supply chains in the U.S. And then you consider, you know, everything else from hurricanes to flooding. You know, you think of the heat waves that hit the Pacific Northwest and what that did to roads, what it did to, you know, we talked about how there were like cables that were melted and, and the infrastructure that it, damage that it caused. Flooding in British Columbia and the fact that Vancouver was pretty much cut off from every side because their roadways were washed out. So there's, there's definitely no shortage of examples of weather-related disasters that happened this year. And while we can't specifically point to each one and say, that only happened because of climate change. It is clear and it is apparent that climate change is making these disasters more likely, so more frequent, um, but also more intense. And it certainly plays a role in the overall outcome. Yeah, if all the other things going on in the world weren't enough to make people feel like the Earth is a kind of scary place to live, all of the weather events alone, the extreme weather events, the climate issues, like you said, it's increasing so rapidly and it's causing so many problems for individuals and communities and especially for societies that, you know, it feels like we're almost always in a state of crisis. It makes me think about the IPCC report that came out this year in which they used much stronger language than they ever have before. And they outlined not only all the problems that we're seeing, but what that means for us if we don't make any changes. And there was a lot of talk in 2021 about changes. You know, President Biden, right from the start of his presidency, committed to rejoining the Paris Climate 
agreement. Um, China agreed in September to discontinue financing coal-fired power plants overseas. There was the big COP26 event, you know, the meeting in Glasgow, in which all these countries pledged to take steps to address climate change. And all of that's great. I hope that results in action. In the coming years, we'll see if those are anything more than just agreements. One statement I saw in an article I thought was interesting, it said, even as President Biden pushed Congress to address climate change in a major information infrastructure bill, he asked OPEC to increase oil production in a bid to lower gasoline prices. And that just speaks to the dilemma that we're in. In order to prop up one aspect of society, you know, the economy and our growth and production and everything we're trying to do there, it comes at the detriment to society in all of the issues we're seeing as a result of climate change. Yeah, it's the catch-22 that we talk about frequently and is the main reason why real action on climate is not going to be taken. And it's that in order to reach net zero, in order to prevent hitting two degrees Celsius, that sort of thing, it would require a severe decrease in consumption. It would require a, a degrowth, right? Which would mean ceasing the extraction and processing of fossil fuels, which of course would in the end mean an absolutely devastated economy. And no president is going to carry that out. Directly after the meetings in Glasgow, Joe Biden pretty much right away increased the leasing for rights to mining in the Gulf of Mexico for oil exploration. And it felt like the promises or the agreements that were made were not enough to really start with. And even those are not even close to being kept. And I hate being like a downer on climate and climate action. Like I, I wish so badly that I believed that it was going to work or that countries would even do what they say that they're going to do. But I think it's just, you know, an effort to placate the people who who want it, who want to hear it. But like Greta Thunberg says, it's all kind of just blah, blah, blah at this point. It's all talk and no real action. You know, one interesting thing that I saw as I was doing some research on this year was something in regards to wildfires. And it was talking about how over the last 80 years, CO2 emissions from wildfires globally is actually decreasing. We're emitting less on average due to wildfires. And I thought that was, that was kind of shocking to me because it feels like, well, we have more wildfires than we ever have. It turns out that the reason that we're having less emissions from wildfires is because there's less wild land in which to have fires because we're increasingly converting that land to agriculture. It was saying the net emissions of the land itself is not going down because the agricultural methods are so high in emissions. It's just that the actual emissions that are attributed to fires is decreasing. So that was interesting. But that being said, in this year, there was actually record number of emissions in certain areas. So like Siberia had record numbers for carbon emissions, as did Turkey and the United States. All in all, we emitted something like 1.76 gigatons equivalent of carbon dioxide from wildfires, which is something like 4% of all the emissions. So that's, you know, that's not unsubstantial. And I think for me, one of the biggest concerns just living in the U.S. for years to come is the increasing wildfires each year in the U.S. and especially the drought. 
you know, it was something like 75% of the Western U.S. was in drought conditions, with 21% of those conditions being deemed as exceptional drought, which is the most extreme level. And that's not slated to get better this year. We'll have to see what happens with snowpack and everything, but... But from the looks of it, you know, and just the fact that California has already declared water restrictions for next year, even though we haven't even got through the winter yet in certain parts, just shows that local governments are gearing up for a really rough year water-wise, which is going to put a lot of strain on farmers, on agriculture in general, and in the end, exacerbates those fire conditions. And I think one of the biggest consequences that we saw from these droughts, from these fires, from the increased heat is the absolute strain and devastation that those can put on the nation's infrastructure. Yeah, and infrastructure is an interesting topic because we keep seeing our infrastructure deteriorate. You know, we've talked about the report from the Army Corps of Engineers and how it would just take trillions of dollars to really get our infrastructure up to where it should be, at least here in the U.S. I know the condition isn't much better in most other places in the world. You know, that makes me think of the Surfside condominium building collapse that took place in Florida. Some of those issues that, that caused that building to collapse, you know, there were a number of factors there, but it can be partly attributed to sea level rise and the way that that's kind of eating away, eroding some of these structures beneath the ground. 98 people died. So that was a major tragedy. I know there were a lot of conversations and debates politically trying to figure out how much the government was willing to agree on for this big infrastructure bill that ended up going through. It wasn't nearly as large in the end as what was originally intended. And I know that's often the case with any sort of bill. They anticipate it will go through rounds of negotiation, but it is worrying to me that compared to the amount of spending we need to put into our infrastructure, the kind of funding that's been approved and what's been budgeted is only a fraction of that. So we've just talked about a lot of things from 2021. Obviously, it wasn't comprehensive. There's so much that we didn't talk about, but I think the things that we've highlighted demonstrate what a wild year it really has been. So if you're listening to this, take a big breath, pat yourself on the back. You made it through 2021. Hopefully, despite all of the negative things taking place out there, you're able to find happiness and fulfillment, and it's been a good year, at least for you personally. Anyways, with that in mind, Corey, I would like to hear your outlook on what we can expect from 2022. And I know we don't usually try to make any predictions. Hopefully, it can just kind of be more for fun. We know that we don't have a crystal ball here, but looking at what we've seen up to this point and using your own thoughts and opinions, tell us what you predict. Yeah, I think it's important to really accentuate what you said about this just being fun because I, you know, we've talked a lot in the podcast about how neither of us are experts in any of this. I have no idea what's to say, you know, what's to come. Nobody does. But I just kind of sat down, um, you know, on the subreddit every year they do a, what are your predictions for 2022? And I think it's fun to just write them up. So I did that, gun to my head, what's going to happen in 2022? What does it look like? Don't make any choices in your life based off of what I'm about to say. Um, but honestly, I... I think this next year, I think there will be a lot of unexpected and intense things that'll happen. But for the most part, I think when it comes to like the economy, I think things are going to regulate. I think uh, 
people will look at this year's economy in 2022 and and at least from like a media standpoint they're going to call it a strengthening economy it's going to look like everything's going up right i think we'll continue to see that sort of k curve where it is going up for you know maybe the top 20 or 30% of income levels right but for the working class i think under the surface there's going to be a lot of continued struggles and i also think that for those paying attention it's going to be pretty obvious that the economy isn't actually strengthening on the surface it may look that way because gdp is increasing right there's a strong housing market there's more consumer spending than ever but i think under the surface we're going to see that we're really kind of rotting from the inside with increased inflation i think that in 2022 the federal reserve is going to increase interest rates I think they're kind of backed into a corner and are going to have to do that. But typically the reason they they do that is to fight inflation, which is why they're now at the point where they're feeling like they have to, but the purpose for low interest rates is to stimulate the economy. And so I think in my opinion, I think we're headed towards a bit of a a stagflation period in which after they've increased interest rates, you know, it could hamper that thriving economy and and towards the end of the year or maybe into the next year we start to see a little bit more of a decline again. As far as inflation, I don't think it's going to stop. I think we'll continue to see increasing rates of inflation and, and higher costs of goods, particularly because I think supply chain issues will persist. I don't think supply chains are going to get much better. I think there will be some areas, kind of like what you mentioned, Kellen, in which supply chains are, are great and back to normal. But I think there will be other areas in which the problem intensifies. As sort of a, a bold claim regarding supply chains you know i could see certain parts of the country or of the world um having food issues i could see hoarding you know we saw hoarding of like toilet paper but i could see of of more staple items just as we get this ramp up of you know a global food crisis with fertilizer issues with severe drought in parts of the world with exporting issues and supply chain problems so i could see something like that i also as a bold claim kind of wrote down that i could see the healthcare industry really struggling under the continued strain of covid-19 to the point where hospitals are severely understaffed but i could also see an issue because of supply chains with some sort of medical items that are normally like very common but come up in short supply and cause issues I've just got to interject here. I want you to keep making your predictions, but you talked about COVID and the impact that that could have on the medical industry or certain supply chains. And I've just got to call out that in our recap of 2021, we didn't really talk about COVID. We talked about some of the indirect effects of it, but over 5.3 million people worldwide have died from COVID-19. You know, I think it's over 800,000 just in the U.S. And somehow we failed to mention that, which I don't know how we forgot when we're talking about 2021. Yeah, it's funny because I actually made a note uh, in my research when I was looking at it. I, I looked at some of the numbers and I and I wrote them down. So I don't, I don't know how we spaced to talk about it. But yeah, the, the 800,000 in the U.S., you know, more people died in the U.S. this year than last year from COVID. And obviously... We had the entire year this year in 2020, it started in March, but so many people treat COVID like it's over, or at least like it's kind of dying out and, and there's not that much to it. But no, we're, we're having an increasing number of deaths this year over the last year that shows that it's it's definitely not over. And, and with the advent of these new variants that continue to come along and are more contagious, you know, it's obvious that it's not going to go anywhere. It's not going away anytime soon. Well, when you think about impressive or good things that have happened, you know, it's incredible 
it's lightning fast that they were able to develop a vaccine so quickly. Usually it takes years and years. Sometimes it takes a couple decades just to come up with a vaccine. They were able to do it in less than a year, but the trick is getting people to actually get the vaccine. But yeah, when you talk about the Delta variant, you talk about the Omicron variant, and with so many cases, it just keeps mutating. So anyways, I'll let you get back to your predictions. Yeah, well, on that topic, I did put down a couple predictions about COVID-19. I think that with everything kind of going back to normal, I really do think that people will altogether just decide to basically ignore COVID-19 or treat it like just part of life. There's so much fatigue around it. I think there will still be a core set of people who will continue to really adhere to the, the measures and get their boosters and all that. But I think that for the most part, people are going to become more disenchanted with vaccines, less likely to get boosters. And I think that the vaccination rates will go down. And because of that, I think more deadly variants are going to come around. I think as those variants rise, more people are just going to say like, oh, it's just another one. We've already heard about Delta and Omicron and all these different variants that you've talked about. It's just more of the same. But I do think that the, the number of deaths and infections and the effect that it's going to have on the healthcare system is going to increase this year. And as sort of my bold prediction that I'd written down, I think there will be a new variant that will escape immunizations. I think we're finding out that Omicron might be able to do that, but that it also may be more mild. They still don't know yet. It's still too early to say, um, but I think a, a different variant will come along that will escape immunization. Um, and I think that less than 40% of Americans will get the new vaccine that rolls out for it. So some of the other predictions um, you know, around housing market, I put that I think it's going to remain stubbornly strong. A lot of people think that it's going to collapse and that you know housing prices are just going to plummet. I don't think that's going to happen. I think um, it won't be as crazy as what we've seen over the last year and a half, two years, um, but I still think that it'll be really high year over year increases. Just like we talked about earlier, I think that home ownership is going to become more and more impossible for the working class. I think rents will continue to increase. I also think that there's going to be an increase in social action around homelessness and rents and evictions and that type of thing. Um, kind of like how we saw, you know, we see protests and riots around social justice issues. I could see this becoming an issue that people actually rally around. And so I think that mortgage rates will increase this year. And I think that there will continue to be a shortage of new homes being built. I think it'll be a record number of millennial and Gen Z generations that are not buying homes and are instead choosing to live with their parents or rent um, or obviously be homeless. When it comes to things like social uprising, I think, you know, in the U.S., we've seen a lot of political tension, and I think that's going to increase. This is the year of the 2022 midterm elections, which are enormously important in the United States. I think that because of what happened with Kyle Rittenhouse and that whole situation and the verdict there, I think we'll see an increase in violence at protests. Um, I think because of the way that the legal system works, I think people will try and take advantage of that and make claims of protecting themselves, right, um, in order to enact violence on others. As a bold prediction there, I just think, I think there will be a significant number of people um, that will die this year in protest clashes involving firearms or vehicles. And I don't, I don't know a number, but, you know, in the, in the dozens of people um, where, you know, this last year we saw maybe two or three or four, I think, deaths from firearms in these types of clashes, I could see it being um, much higher. When it comes to the 2022 elections and politics, I think that Republicans are going to win. I think they'll hold power of the House and the Senate. And I think Trump will announce his run in 2024. I think we're going to see more. I mean, this is not really a bold prediction. We're going to see more divisiveness politically, but I also think we'll see more on the fringe 
you know, you have like in the GOP, Marjorie Taylor Greene level of rhetoric. And I think we'll start to see that type of rhetoric increase a lot because I think Trump announcing he's going to run again is going to cause people to basically devote their loyalty to him. Right. And a lot of the, in my opinion, sort of um, just really high stakes rhetoric that comes with that. I think that with the 2022 elections, there's going to be more of the same sort of allegations of voter fraud. I think there'll be a lot of claims of voter suppression as well. And honestly, I I think that Democrats are just going to not really do anything about it. I think they're going to get a little bit steamrolled and Democrats like to play the victim. And I think that that's what's going to happen is that they're going to play this uh, this victim card well and say, poor us, we got beat. They'll claim they got cheated out of it, which tends to now suddenly be, the you know, whatever the loser does of any election, they just claim to be cheated out of it. And that basically kind of excuses them from looking at the real issues of why they lost, that sort of thing. And then the last thing that I noted here is kind of a specific prediction was around energy and gas prices. Last year, I'd kind of predicted in the in the subreddit that gas prices were going to increase pretty sharply and that that wasn't going to last a really long time, that people's tolerance for those really high prices was going to be low and that it would come back down. And I think that right now we're in the in the peak of those high prices, or at least the last couple months we have been, and that I think they will come back down. Um, and I think they'll come down significantly, at least in the first part of this next year. And not because demand is decreasing, but that supply is slowly catching back up, that maybe investments back into, into oil extraction and things like that is is catching back up to what demand needs it to be. I also think part of it is um, you know Joe Biden's efforts in you know, releasing reserves and putting more pressure on OPEC to get them to increase the the pace of production. In the end, though, I don't think that the low prices are going to last very long. Um, I think that towards the middle to end of the year, I think we'll start to see increases again. And I think there'll be pretty significant increases. Um, and I think that as a side prediction and maybe another bold prediction, I think a big platform that Trump is going to run on for 2024 is his claim that he's going to fix our energy issues, you know, make America, the United States, energy independent again. And then with climate change, you know, I put, it's obviously no bold prediction to say that things are going to be crazy, like weather-wise. There's not really any way to to kind of be bold in that unless you get really specific. I think things will get worse, specifically in the U.S. I think the drought problem is going to be much worse. I said that there's going to be an increase in paramilitary action and activity in the Western United States from the likes of the Bundys, you know, and their issue they take with the government over land and water restrictions and things like that. To be a little more specific and bold regarding the Arctic, I put that there would not be a a blue ocean event this year, but that maybe um, melting would start early and end late. I put it would be the second worst year on record for sea ice melt with at least one super warming event during the summer due to jet stream abnormalities. So just some random things I put. I also put, uh, this is just silly, but I said maybe there will be like a uh, a snowpocalypse happening somewhere in like the eastern United States or Europe, something like 10 plus feet of snow dumped on a location. I just wanted to choose something specific that was random, right? Because just saying like, there will be more wildfires, uh, isn't really bold of a prediction. And the last thing that I mentioned was I think heat waves will specifically be an issue. Perhaps this will be the year we see a lethal wet bulb temperature event in somewhere like the UAE or Saudi Arabia. So those are my ideas of the next year. Um, obviously, my ideas are going to differ greatly from yours, most likely. Everybody has their own idea of what the future looks like. 
Again, they're not meant to be taken seriously. I'm just a guy who is spouting, you know, whatever. I won't be surprised at all if none of those things happen. But I think it'll be fun next year to come back and say, all right, this is what we had predicted. Did any of that actually happen? I'm curious, Kellen, if you have a different idea about any of the things I mentioned, um, maybe what you think this next year will be like. Well, I think you're just a doomer. That all sounds really negative. We're going to have a wonderful year. No, I mean, I think you've been thoughtful in your predictions, and I don't think any of those are too crazy or out there or alarmist. I think they're pretty reasonable. There will definitely be people who will be like, no, dude, you have no idea what you're talking about. The clathrate gun hypothesis is going to happen, or a meteor is going to come strike us, and we're all extinct by the end of the year. And I've been dragged before by people saying, like, your your predictions are tepid. Well, I mean, <laughs> I don't know how, how bold you can get in, in these types of things. Yeah, I think the only places where maybe I differ from you are that I do think there's going to be some more economic downturn than what you're predicting. I think we're headed into a bear market. I think you're right about the housing market. I think there's going to continue to be a housing shortage and those houses will still be in high demand. But I do think we'll see some significant issues. I don't know if you'd call it a full-on recession, but I think we're going to start heading that way. I also think just from like a people perspective, we're going to see some kind of weird things. I think these last couple of years have been exhausting emotionally and mentally for people. And I think on top of that, there's some aspects of the workforce that have kind of changed forever. I think people are getting really used to the idea of working from home and feeling more entitled to higher wages, which I don't think is right or wrong necessarily. Um, I think students have been thrown around so much and after having experienced time in and out of schools and doing remote learning and seeing that it's done differently in every county and state, I think it's going to be really challenging for young people to take school seriously. I think adults are going to have a very hard time feeling fulfilled in their careers or at work. And just generally speaking, there's going to be a continuation of this mental health crisis that we've seen. And I think because people are kind of disenchanted with the system at large. They feel unfulfilled by their school or work. I think that's when we're going to start to see individuals kind of acting out. In some ways, that'll be good because people are willing to think outside of the box and get really innovative and try new ways of doing education or new ways of doing business or new ways of socially interacting. But I think for most people, they're going to be extremely bored. And in cases where there's serious mental health, I'm concerned that that's going to cause more either violence or in perhaps a more productive channel, it'll cause people to become very opinionated on political issues or to become like justice warriors. So if you combine that with my thoughts on where the economy is headed, I don't think we're going to see anything really huge and tragic, but I think we're going to see lots of little cases of increased crime, increased violence, and people just being more socially disruptive. Awesome. I love it. I mean, I don't love that that you think that's what's going to happen, but I love the opinion. It'll be interesting to see what happens and reconnect next year and just kind of see. And it's funny because I, I think I feel the exact same way as you do. I just think my timeline's different, right? Like I know we're headed towards an economic downturn at some point. I just think, uh, I think at least again, like I said, on the surface, it'll appear that we're that we're doing great, but it'll be fun to see. With that being said, while we're on the topic of predictions, you know, people reach out. I've had people reach out and ask and say, 
like what what do you think is going to happen in the future long term like what does collapse look like where where are we 50 years from now or whatever you know i even had a, a kid reach out to me and say guy mcpherson says that we're going to be extinct in five years you know and this poor kid was like depressed and just you know i know that a lot of people have very wildly different views of what the future is going to hold and how bad it's going to get if you get on the subreddit on our collapse you see commenters talking about again extinction type stuff you know in the next couple of decades and they're just absolutely convinced of that my opinion and one that i think uh, the more that i think about things just based on the way that we talk about them on the podcast i think we're in for some awfully hard times in the future but I think that my vision of the future most accurately follows John Michael Greer's in that I think our decline is going to be over time. And I don't I don't expect that we're going extinct. Is it possible? Sure. There could be there could be some crazy event, right, that happens over the course of a couple of decades that causes that. But in my opinion, and again, totally just doesn't matter what my opinion is, I think that our long decline will be marked by significant drops along the way. And I do think that we'll experience a significant drop of those during our lifetime. I think the way our financial system is set up, the amount of energy that we use, all of these things that we've talked about, I think they're all going to come to a head. And I think when people talk about the Great Reset, I think we are going to have to have something like that. And I think it's going to be incredibly messy. I think it, it will be collapse when it happens. I think there will be a decrease in population and socioeconomic complexity. It will be collapse. And in my opinion, I think after that happens, like John Michael Greer talks about, I think as a society, we pick ourselves up a little bit. We lower our standard of living, but continue moving forward. Like I think society continues just at a much less quality of life, much lower comfort standards of living. You know, it, it, it's a world unrecognizable to the one we live now. But I don't think it leads to extinction in the short term. In John Michael Greer's book, Dark Age America, he talks about how eventually over those centuries that it takes, in the end, everything is lost as far as the history of who we were and, and our culture and all of that. I don't personally ascribe to the idea that, you know, by 2070 or 2100, there won't be humans on the earth anymore. That's just not the way that I view it personally. Yeah, I think what you're saying is consistent with what you've told me all along. Right from the start, you told me that collapse doesn't mean extinction. And in defining collapse, you've always talked about it being something that takes time. That even the word itself, collapse, can be a bit of a misnomer because it's more of a, a gradual decline with, like you said, significant drops along the way. I think even as I hear you describe it, I'm still perhaps more optimistic than you. I think we're going to face unprecedented difficulties. I think we will adapt and innovate, but I think we're going to face things in the future that are more difficult than what we've faced in the past. And I do think it's going to result in wide-scale suffering, you know, people going hungry, political issues and international conflict and global systems changing and I think it's going to be very messy like you're saying and I think it's going to be very painful. But I think we will continue to have a lot of the same technology in some ways, a lot of the same complexity that we have built up. But regardless of whether somebody thinks it's going to be much more extreme or much more mild, I think along the way there's been a lot of evidence presented on this podcast to demonstrate that there are just certain things we're doing that are not sustainable, that have to change, and that that change 
will be very difficult. And so knowing that and knowing what those things are, at least for me personally, helps me feel more informed, more aware, like I'm not going to be caught off guard or surprised. And it also helps me just get the right expectations in my mind, do some preparedness, make sure I'm setting up my life to be adaptable as those things come and and trying to make it so I can ease the suffering of those around me along the way. So regardless of the specifics of how the future looks, I think knowing that we're heading in a, a direction of decline in one way or another is valuable and it's beneficial. Yeah, I totally agree. You know, we, we talked about in an episode early on how the future in almost every case, whatever it is that might trigger a severe decline, it's just going to look like a depression, right? Like a like a serious economic issue. Because economics is how our problems present themselves, because we've tied all of these things to money. And so my idea of the future and sort of this really tough time that I talk about, this big drop, to me just looks like a major depression, but one that lasts decades in which there's a lot of hardship and strife. And it sounds like what you're saying, your idea is that there's change over time, but we're more adapting to things. It might just be more gradual. But like you said, either way, no matter what it is, no matter what the future looks like, just having an idea of what problems are presented to us helps us to know what we can do, what we can expect, how we can sort of brace ourselves for that, prepare ourselves mentally and physically. And that, for me personally, brings a significant level of comfort. If you were put off by this episode, especially the last bit where we were speculating, rest assured, we're not going to start speculating on the podcast. I think we'll leave that to one episode a year, the very last episode of the year, where we recap what happened that year and, and make our predictions for the next. Other than that, we will keep it to pure facts and science as we know it and leave our own sort of personal thoughts and ideas out of it. Yeah, I think we do more open thinking in our bonus episodes. So for people that actually enjoy hearing that and that care to know what we think, there's a space for that. You can join us on Patreon. But I think we do want to stick to the original purpose of this podcast, which is to inform and present information to build awareness without being prescriptive and without being alarmist and without being speculative. Thanks so much for listening. We appreciate it. Even though it's been a crazy tough year, it's great to have the support of our listeners. We really appreciate you being here every week to, to listen to us blab on, and we hope to have you here for many years to come. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, welcome to the Next Wave Podcast. Consider us your chief AI officer in your business. My name is Matt Wolf. I have the number one YouTube channel in the AI space. I also run futuretools.com and I'm joined by my co-host, Nathan Lands, founder of lore.com. We want to bring you the latest AI news and trends, show you how you can use AI in your business and personal life and help make it super easy for you to understand and execute. We're going to equip you with the knowledge to thrive in this upcoming wave of change.